Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of the Cersei Institute Podcast Network is brought to you by our friends at New College Franklin, where they respect the sacrifices you have made as parents and teachers to educate your children in wisdom and virtue. But how do you sustain this during the college years? Through a robust exploration of the great books and the seven liberal arts in an environment of rich conversation, shared life, and spiritual discipleship, New College continues to build on the foundation that you have laid at home. New College students grow in wisdom and see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Take the next step in your education and join the conversation in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee. Come for a preview weekend or schedule a visit at your convenience. You can learn more at newcollegefranklin.org. That's newcollegefranklin.org. Hello and welcome to Quiddity here on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network. I'm David Kern and I'm joined by my friend Josh Gibbs this week. Josh, uh, welcome to the podcast. Welcome to the room where we are recording. I was going to say the studio, but it's not a studio. It is a room, a very densely packed room with lots of stuff on the walls for everyone who's listening. At yeah, home. yeah, cinder blocks. You know, it could be a nice office, but it's not. Is the um, is the dog that's barking next door going to show up on the... Um... Nah, we'll be okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah, we're, for those who don't know, paint a little picture here. Uh, add a little bit more to the, uh, to the picture of the office that people are getting in bits and pieces. We are next door to a dog hotel, a, <laughs> a company that boards dogs. And so periodically on the other side of the cinder block... There is unhappy barking, mass hysteria of the canine sort, or happy barking. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, Josh, what's new with you? What are you up to this summer? You are a teacher, so you're off. What have you been doing? I did two conferences this summer. I did the Society for Classical Learning National Conference, and then I did the Circe Conference as well. And by did you mean you spoke at them? You I spoke, spoke at both. both of them, and I traveled to Texas by car for both of them. So. There was a lot of driving. Wow, you did go to Texas no, wait, twice. I'm sorry. No, I'm no, sorry. I went to Texas twice, but once was by train. I'm sorry. Well, that's almost longer. It was much longer. <laughs> because to get to... Did you to go to Chicago to, or something? To Texas, I had to go to Chicago. Yeah. So from, from Richmond to Texas by way of Chicago. That's crazy. It was really long. So you teach at the Veritas School in Richmond, Virginia. That's right. How long have you been there? Next year will be my fourth year. 
Okay. And what do you teach? Next year, I'm going to teach literature, six sections of literature. Wow. And six, six classes? Six classes and one elective. Every day? Or they alternate? Those are three days a week. Okay. So six classes, three days, three times a week. Okay. So you at least have a day where you can do some prep in between. And... It's like 20 blocks in a 25 block week. Okay. That's intense. It's a lot. You ready? <laughs> uh, we'll see. I'm anxious to see how the first couple of weeks pass. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I've taught I've taught 22 blocks in a 25 block week. Okay. So I I'm accustomed to a lot of talking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's good. So, uh, we are going to talk about uh, movies. We're going to talk about um, training discernment i guess yes in in film watching yes so you were the editor uh were the editor of or are the editor of film fisher i am the editor okay. of film fisher can you uh, what's your background in film writing film criticism and so forth besides film fisher where did it start where did that interest start for you that's a hmm. um well a very a very long time ago mm-hmm. 13 years ago i think it's 13 years ago I had a blog called The Cedar Room, which is different than the column that I have on the Circe website right, right. today. But did that inspire? Is that where you got the name from? You just went back to that? I just went back to that. Kind of a tribute to your, to your early days? Yeah, so I, I'd be delighted. I kind of wanted to be findable. So um, I had a lot of readers that I never met. I have a lot. I had some readers I never met 13 <laughs> back in years the day? ago. Right? Yeah. Um, hey, that was the heyday of blogs, though. That's true. That was when... Everyone and their and their aunt had a blog, and everyone and their aunt still has a blog, but they haven't touched it in nine years. Yeah, so. exactly. I don't go anywhere. That's right. Um, so I had this. I, ha- I started a blog a long time ago, and uh, and I I had an interest in short fiction from the time I was sixteen. Okay. And my interest in film was really an extension of my interest in short fiction. So I wasn't interested in movies first. I was interested in writing short stories first. And my interest in film really grew out of the fact that, by and large, with maybe a few notable exceptions, a film is not analogous to a novel. A film is analogous to a short story, so far as most things are concerned. Right. The, the TV show with the multiple seasons and that's more the, the, the 15 hours is more analogous with the novel. Right. It's, yeah, far more novel-like. So the short story pushed you in towards film. That's right. Uh, so, so my earliest critiques of film were all based on my knowledge of short story writing. So you would watch a movie and then you'd be critical of it based on like the craft of short story writing. Based your on knowledge the craft of that. Of, that's right. That's interesting. So that's not entirely absent from the way that I view and, and talk about movies today. But it's it's certainly more in the background than the foreground hmm. of, of how I would analyze a, a film or talk about a film. So I want to talk about this for a second. This is interesting because I've often felt the same way. You know, yeah. I, I studied some short fiction writing in college yeah. um, and, fe- and always felt like movies and short stories were analogous. There yeah. was something similar about the way you create narrative arc within them, for example, or the things right. you focus on. Right. Um, there's a lim- there's limited scope. Right. Um, which is both a good thing and a challenge. Right. At the same time. Um, in what ways did what kind of things were you looking for 
um, when you were watching movies that came out of your studies of short, short fiction? Okay, so um, there, there's a certain aspect of film history that ought to be mentioned when, when talking about this, which was my interest in short fiction grew up, my interest in short fiction writing was, was kind of happening or beginning in the late 90s, early 2000s. And that was the heyday of indie film companies proliferating. And when I think of the indie film, mm-hmm. the first thing that really comes to mind is everything between, you know, Pulp Fiction and the first X-Men movie. This kind of six-year stretch where Miramax was ascendant and, um, you know, the Blair Witch Project yeah. and Pi were these indie film success stories. Uh, these are ch- films that are made very cheaply. They're they're primarily story-based. Um, and if you think of... Mo- it's, it's interesting because a lot of these indie directors from that period, yeah. now, uh, like Christopher Nolan early right. on, Blockbuster. the early Christopher, yeah, now they're making That's right. Dunkirk and they're making That's these right. huge movies with Jennifer Lawrence and with these gaudy posters and everything. That's and right. It's, I guess they... Ascended at the they came into that world at the right time and are part of the reason probably why that's right the culture has changed so much. Sure, or you look at someone like uh, you look at someone like Steven Soderbergh, mm, yeah, who yeah. sexualizing videotape was this big deal within the indie film world, yeah. Um, and then or, he made Ocean's Eleven. And then he made Ocean's Eleven. He does. Yeah. He just does these big, you know, global blockbusters with you know five hundred million dollar casts and yeah. Um, so the movies that were very popular when I got into short story writing were all these very character character driven stories I would say that an indie film is by and large a character driven film um, it kind of has to be it, it kind of has to be the limitations yeah that's right you're not relying on you know exotic locations and, special effects right and big actors that can right exactly that can the sell. personality of a star yeah right yeah um, of course anybody back in the 1950s would not have thought of movies as primarily character-driven, I mean, the first thing that would have come to mind when you thought of the ascendant films of the 1950s, the big sword and sandal epics, right, you know, your, your right. Charlton Heston. Yeah. Uh, Ben-Hur. Or, right. Cleopatra. Right. Although that was a little later, but... Um, yeah, the these very big films were, were what everyone wanted to see. But um, when I first got into short story running, it was the character-driven films. And so um, those were primarily what I was watching while I was first starting to write short stories um and so my earliest experience with film criticism was really watching character driven films and evaluating character and that's it um and i didn't have much of a knowledge of uh, filmmaking as an art i was really just evaluating scripts i I would say um or like were you what were you were you looking specifically at like the dialogue and the way it was crafted or more like the narrative arcs and things like that? I would say both. Okay. Um, uh, you know, evaluating the, the quality of the dialogue, whether it was, whether it was too gritty and unpolished or whether it was mm-hmm. overly polished yeah, or whether yeah. it met this kind of nice spot in between complexity of characters, whether the characters had believable backstories, um, was a character at the tip of an iceberg, and, and could I assume that there was a lot underneath uh, what was being shown? You know, these kind of things. Were you doing all this, like, kind of in the framework of these of the famous sort of character and narrative critics, the Northrop Fries, and um, 
Or, or would you not have thought about it at the time? Like, I wouldn't have you thought, know, like the idea of archetypes and all that kind of stuff. I wouldn't have thought about that at the time. Uh, I'm, I don't think that I read... I wasn't even reading film criticism at the time. Um, I was reading short stories and reading books of short story theory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think when I was 18, I read The Writer with a Thousand Faces by Christopher Vogler, who's... Uh, I think that's the right title. I get the title wrong every time. Um but he's a kind of big, uh, big Hollywood script consultant who's also a student of Jung and Campbell, and yeah, um, and he had some some interesting things to say about archetypes that I'd never heard before, and yeah. And after I read um, after I read Vogler, I kind of started looking at films a little bit differently. They weren't just they weren't just short stories. The film was actually more formulaic than a short story, and mm-hmm. so I started evaluating them. In terms of their ability to uh, succeed with a formula, or yeah. or to triumph over the predictability uh, of a formula without violating it, maybe. Mm. Well, you know, we dove right into this conversation without really yeah. setting it up too much. So yeah. we we do want to talk um, about how to help our students and our children, you know, whether yeah. at home or in the classroom. Yeah. Watch discuss ask good questions of films yeah and then maybe discuss a little bit about how to know when to let kids make their own decisions and things like that which of course is is a challenging thing and is unique to each right. to each student i suppose when you were growing up did your parents let you watch whatever you wanted or how how did your how did your experiences with film yeah i mean I, you've given a little background yeah. and how it connected to your love of short stories but did you just watch whatever you wanted, or did they walk you through that? Did they were you? Or did you feel like they were maybe overly restrictive? How, what was your world of film watching like as a child? So, my experience watching television when I was I watched a lot of television, too much television when I was young. But uh, my parents did give me a rather simple, um a rather simple, very binary kind of question to ask of anything that I watched on television, which is, is this true or is this not true? And that question did me a lot of good um, when, I was, when I was younger. I shouldn't have watched as much TV as I did, but this was a good, this was a good question to, to give a child to ask. I was mainly raised on Alfred Hitchcock films, and Frank Capra films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think my parents gave me unrestricted freedom to watch what I wanted to when I was about 17. And they, they really stopped policing what I checked out from the library or what I rented from the video store when I was about 17. Do you think you were prepared for that? Or do you think, and I don't mean that, yeah. I don't mean for you to, to, don't judge, I'm not asking you to yeah. like, judge your, the quality of your parents' sure. parenting job, sure. but at a certain point your parents do, as parents we have to set our kids free. Right. And do you feel like you individually were ready for that, aside from whatever questions they gave you? Man. Um, no, I don't. Um and that's not maybe what I sh- I wish that I'd been taught how to self-police a little bit better 
not just ask, is this true, but do I, is this true or is this false is, is one question that you can ask about a film. Mm-hmm. But of course, you have to be watching the film about which you ask that question before you can ask it. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's asking, sh- is this true or is this false about a film that you're watching? But then there's also not even watching the film and not asking the question mm-hmm. as well. Um, and so while the question is a good question, is this true or is this not true? Um, should I be watching this or not is kind of a preliminary question before you can even get to the question right. of whether it's true. And when we're, when our kids are young, yeah. we make that decision for them. Sure. A 17, I don't know. I, I think... Is anybody ready for self-policing truly at 17? No. And I, I, I think that our, our culture is largely determined that 17 or 18 is about the time when someone starts determining for themselves what they're going to watch. I don't know that there's any way around that. Yeah I, I, yeah. I, I don't know that it's... It seems sort of like when people say, are you ready to get married or ready to have kids? Oh, in a, no. In a sense, no, you're not. Right. Nor is it the kind of thing that you can be ready for. Right. I, I mean, at, in a micro scale, maybe this is a similar idea. Sure. Like you're, can you ever really be ready to police yourself? And as parents and teachers, we have to do the best we can. It's true. And hopefully provide the resources and the, the tools to... Right. To give them a way to assess themselves right. and assess a work. Yeah. Do you think it begins with assessing yourself or assessing the work first? If you, so if you're trying to decide if you're 18 yeah. or if you're 40 or whatever, right. and you see a, movie, a film, I don't know, let's say Pulp Fiction, right. because that's got, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a, the kind of film that people are going to be very divided on. Right. How do you, what, what's the process for determining yeah. whether you should watch that movie? Or let's say it's a movie you've never seen before that you see the trailer for, you see the poster for. Right. I don't know, something that's something that's coming out. Right. How do you go about deciding for yourself whether you should watch that movie? Um, my taste has gotten pretty... What do I want to say? Um, the older I get, the less interested I am in violence, in um, gore. Uh, Those things used to be very attractive to me in a film. Um, I don't know that I have... I think that my my only standard for whether I go to see a film today, standard in the kind of classic standards for families, Mm -hmm. standards for Mm -hmm. kids, I think my only standard is, um, uh, do I want to see this? And I don't really want to see a whole lot. I mean, I, I enjoy watching films on the occasion that I watch them, but I, I watch very few films. Um, the films that I watch affect me very deeply. And I would say the same is, is kind of true of books anymore. I don't read a lot of books. The books that I read affect me very deeply. So you, uh, you'll watch a movie more than once rather than watch a new movie. Many times. Yeah. Many times. I don't, um, yeah, I don't. There's a few. I mean, a few directors that I trust. Um, I have plans when I get home tomorrow to finish watching *The American Friend*, which is a Vim Benders movie. I trust Vim Benders. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of slowly working through his catalog, but um, I would say Vim Benders is a director I like a lot, and I, I would be willing to see anything that he's done. But there's a dozen Vim Benders films that are out there that I could watch whenever I want to, and I only watch one a year. So, <laughs> is that is that the kind of thing that? help can help someone determine though the idea of you find someone who you sort of trust implicitly yes okay so i think that finding directors that you trust finding not actors 
and script writers, but but finding directors that you trust is is a big part of it. So, you know, going going back to Pulp Fiction, um, or that you don't trust, or that you don't <laughs> For some trust. Some people, right, like Mark Tarantino, H- is the kind of person that they shouldn't watch that movie. Right. Yeah, but but the kind of person who shouldn't watch a Tarantino movie is um, is the kind of person who's easily seduced by Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> True. So you know. When it comes to, you know, it's the question of, you know, should, would you let a 16-year-old boy watch Pulp Fiction? Would you let a 16-year-old boy watch Fight Club? Would you let a 16-year-old boy watch, um, uh, trying to think of a a kind of easy example here. Um, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Mm -hmm. Um, there might be a lot of vulgar language in all three of those films, a lot of suggestive content in all three of those films, a lot of sex, a lot of discussion of sex. Um, I would have very little problem showing a 16-year-old boy Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, despite the fact that there's a lot of foul language in it, if memory serves. Um, the issue of, of foul language seems relatively unimportant to me when we're talking about a 16-year-old boy watching a movie like one of those three. A sixteen-year-old boy is not going to be seduced by Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. They're not. They're not going to watch it, and their soul is not going to dilate wide to receive this vision of what it means to be a man. <laughs> right. But right. The, the the problem with Fight Club is that Fight Club's. Well, a very, we feel similarly about Fight Club. <laughs> okay. Right. It's a. It's a. Um, a supremely. <clears throat> excuse me. It's a supremely cunning film, mm-hmm. and. Uh, it puts forward a powerful, <clears throat> lucid vision of what it means to be a man. And it's entirely wrong. And I, <clears throat> sorry, I would worry about showing a 16-year-old boy Fight Club for reasons that have nothing to do with the fact that it's rated R. I think that you could scale Fight Club back to a PG-rated movie, and it would still do horrific damage to a 16-year-old boy's yeah, soul. Yeah, and I think you're getting at something that seems important, that for a long time, Christian parents in particular yeah. have used what are somewhat random guidelines right. from the, like the MPAA ratings right. um, to determine what they let their kids watch. Sure. Like just, and those ratings are based entirely on like it's two F-words and it becomes an R-rated movie. And I'm right. not saying we'd want our kids to see you know, nudity and right. listen to a lot of cursing and see over the, like just extreme violence right. um, without supervision or just whenever they want or whatever. Right. But those seem like they have become like um, almost biblical in the way right. we let them, like we use them to determine what we let our children see. And that seems like what you're getting at is that that's probably not the best idea. Uh, it's not sufficient in and of itself. Because it doesn't get to the heart of either how films are made or like the nature of film right. or to the sort of philosophies embedded within a given films. It's and just it, list of things. It's like, right. go ahead, go ahead. Well, I was, I was just going to say it doesn't, um, those are not the things about a film that really change a person. I, I, hmm. I don't believe. Go on. Go um, on. What do you mean? So... Um, like you've seen uh, Gattaca, Andrew mm-hmm. Nichols' Gattaca. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, in terms of 
objectionable content to the film, it's PG-13. Um, I've seen Gattaca 30 times. It's a movie <laughs> that has sunk very deeply into the way that I interpret the world, what kind of person I want to be. Um, and I like that. I approve of that movie. I love that movie. Um, and I would show that to a son as as early as I thought he could comprehend what he was being shown. 13 or 14, maybe. Now, if you were to take that film and ramp it up to an R rating with lots of vulgar language, um, you know, graphic violence, um, I would still show that to a 14-year-old boy. Um, the language would not get in the way of the fact that it's a that it's a brilliant film that understands what it means to pursue virtue. Um, I think that vulgar language would kind of sully the film. I don't think that vulgar language is a you know is inconsiderable. Um, but I think that's a good movie that does good things to to people, and that language is not going to change that. So. Uh, the average parent who's reviewing a film like that and says, oh, it's rated R, it's got you know, so much language in it. I mean, that it counts, but it doesn't count big, I suppose. Um, whereas if you were to take Fight Club, which is a movie which is rated R, and you were to scale it back to a PG-13 mm-hmm. rating, like imagine this for a moment, Fight Club as a PG-13 rated movie and Gattaca as an R rated movie, which would you show a 14-year-old boy. I don't think I would show a 14-year-old boy <laughs> Fight Club under if it was a G. Under any circumstances, right? Yeah. It's a corrupt movie. It's yeah. a corrupt film. Um, but too, too many parents would say, yeah. well, Gattaca's rated R, Fight Club's PG-13, this one's probably safer, let's do this one. Yeah. And, and you've, you've, put your, you've put your child in the way of a, you know, a seductive, horrific uh, vision of, of humanity when you could have shown him a beautiful vi- vision of humanity um, with, with some terrible language in it as well. So, but this, this goes back to the idea of how you decide something before you've seen it. Right. Because for the parent who hasn't seen Fight Club or who's not that into movies or right. whatever, but has right. children that are, how do you determine whether or not you're going to let your kid watch Fight Club if you've never seen Fight Club? Um, do you not let them watch it? Well, the, okay. So do you not let them watch it or, or what's the criteria that you're using about whether you're going to watch this for yourself or whether you're going to show it to, show it to someone else? Um, I mean, I think, I don't think David Fincher is a trustworthy person. He doesn't make trustworthy films. Um, but, but if you, I think the challenge comes up that <clears throat> film marketing yeah. rarely is going to focus on, like, even if it says a David Fincher film or a you right. know, Spike Lee joint or whatever, right. then you have to be pretty well educated yeah on the film world to be able to like to be able to say oh david fincher movie i know enough about this to make a decision to to have a guess about what this film's going to be like ahead of time and not every parent is is like that so even if you just even if it says david fincher and i mean not everyone's gonna you know the mark the marketing of films is such that they know how to get people of all sorts of interests right you know they're gonna put the david fincher thing on there for the for you know for the 
people who just love films right. and that, that know David Fincher and know that name. But, for but they're also going to have other ways to capture the 13-year-old boy right. or the, you know, they're going to do something cool to capture, you know, the young adult. There's going to mm. be something for everybody in the way they do it. And mm. of course, they're going to know exactly who their primary market is. Right. Um, so the 13-year-old boy might say, you know, look at this movie. There's a, here's a description. It looks like it's a hero's tale or whatever. Right. And then the parents are going to say, the parents are going to have to make a decision and they're going to say, well, I don't know anything about David Fincher. So what do you right. do in that situation? If you're the parent and your child comes to you and they want to see a film and it looks questionable, where do you go? Yeah. Is there, I mean, is it just, you have to find critics that you trust? That might be part of it. Find um, the Josh Gibbs who you trust. Maybe yeah. just find Josh Gibbs. Email me, ask <laughs> me about it. I'll tell you. No. Um, hi, that's a great question. It's a babysitting service. Right. A film babysitting yeah. service. Um, which is why, you know, certain sites that just list all the bad things right, do are, really, really well. Right. Because they make it easy for you to choose. Right. And they, well, they help you. Yeah. I mean, a, a website like ScreenIt will help you make a, a very educated uh, uh, a choice of a parameters. certain kind of education. Right. right. Um, uh, websites like the, the thing is the average 15 year old kid knows the content of the film he's going to see before he sees it better than his parents do. Mm-hmm. And so looking at ScreenIt, or a website like ScreenIt, will just tell you maybe why your child actually wants to see this yeah, movie. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Um, but uh, so, so what do you do? I, you know, I would, I would lay this down as a, as a, kind, of, um, as a kind of general rule. Uh, teenagers probably need to... Teenagers need to watch fewer movies than they think they do. And if there is a significant question in a parent's mind about whether to see a film, um, I, I would always err on the safe side. Um, uh, parents really ought to be doing quite a lot around the, around the home to limit the amount of films that their kids are watching. A film ought to be an event, not a thing that you just kind of casually fall into. Um, hmm. uh, y- you really teach people a, a contempt for film in film being an accident as opposed to a special occasion. Do you think TV has ruined that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the idea of the channel, channel surfing and finding you watch 20 minutes of a movie you've seen 40 times on cable. Right. Or, I mean, even the idea that we can watch a movie on Netflix. Right. Or a TV show I, on Netflix. Yeah, and I'm, I mean, I'm guilty of this. I'm speaking more ideally. But, right. But I think... Um, you know, in a in a kind of in a kind of ideal world, if I could set up my life exactly the way that I wanted it to, like I would go to the I would go to the movie theater four times a year, and I would watch twelve movies at home every year, and that's about it. Like a film would be, I don't know, a major event, but a but a significant event, um, and they would and they would be more carefully chosen. Um, I would. I well, would, I mean, why can't you do that? Lack of self control. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's tempting now that I'm sitting here talking with you about it to like actually circle on my calendar. I also, you know, lack of self control, but also, um, you know, succumbing to temptation and boredom and. But and is that? Is it, and, I mean, I don't mean to be like combative or anything, but is that really necessary? I mean, you say it's an ideal, but is it even? Is it the perfect ideal? Uh, it would certainly allow me to get more out of what I watch than I do. Like maybe if that was the if that was the question, how can a person engage with film so that they get the most out of film that they can. Like I, since I've been sitting here, I've been, I've been looking at this fascinating little, um, maxim on the wall 
for everybody who's listening, there's a there's a there's a a board on, on the wall between David and I, and there's a little a little proverb that says every bit of information that is not useful is a burden. Uh, and <laughs> and when I when I think about that, um, and I think about the fact that you know three months ago, my wife and I were bored on a Friday night, and so we watched the girl on the train. Oh, the yeah. whole thing. Yeah. All two hours of what was one of the worst films I've ever finished watching. A film that, that could not be called useful in any way, shape, or form. I, I And I, I think of this every bit of information that's not useful as a burden. Now, having finished watched The Girl on the Train, not really put a whole lot of time into picking this... It's new. It looks good enough to watch. Mm-hmm. It has, I don't know, a well-designed poster. What's the worst that can happen? <laughs> we waste a, two hours. Right. What's the worst that can happen? It'll be lame. We'll say, eh, that was good enough, but not great. Yeah. Good enough to watch once, not good enough to repeat. Yeah, you know, yeah. uh, how many movies have I finished watching and said, that is only worth watching once? It's only worth watching once. And um, if someone was to ask me, Having seen it, would you watch it again? Would you recommend it to yourself to watch for even the first time? I've, I've watched so many movies, or I start so many movies, where the answer is, no, nah, that really wasn't worth, really wasn't worth watching. wasn't worth, um, wasn't worth watching twice for certain. I mean, what if, what if a man only watched movies that he suspected would be worth watching twice? What, what if that was the criteria? Hmm. I sometimes feel that way about fiction. I think yeah. maybe we're a little more choosy mm-hmm. when we read fiction. Right. In part because it's more of a commitment. Right. You know, the commitment to an hour and a half movie. Right. Or an hour, and, it, it's much less significant. Yeah. But we're a much more, I am anyway, much more choosy when it comes to the books that I read. Yeah. And, um, I, you know, I think that's... I don't know that I would ever have put it that way, but I think that's kind of what I'm doing is I'm saying, is this a book that I'm ever going to want to come back to again? Right. And then, but then it goes back to the question, how, what do you, you, what criteria do you use to kind of guess that? And there is a certain extent to which you do, you really can judge a book by its cover. Sure. Or a movie by its poster or whatever. Or I mean, you can extrapolate, or... you can extrapolate guesses right. out of the knowledge. That's true. Movies do have previews. Right. They tell you a lot in two and a half minutes. Yeah. About the, the choices they make for a preview. Yeah. So, uh, okay. So, you know, here's an example of, of maybe the way this works. Um, a couple nights ago, trying to decide whether I want to watch Train Spotting 2. Right. And I've seen Train Spotting 20 times. Uh, one of my favorite films. A very terrible film. No one, <laughs> no one should watch it, uh, especially me. And and I'm looking at the I'm thinking of the possibility of, of watching Train Spotting too. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I, I I ask myself this question over and over and over before purchasing or not purchasing, you know, a rental of this on on Amazon. How likely am I even going to be to finish this? Mm-hmm. Like I start a lot of stuff and I drop out of. Netflix has made that easy, which is which is another way that film is degraded. Uh, it costs virtually nothing to start a film in terms of money. Uh, the commitment's much brief, much briefer than a book, like you mentioned. Um, 
But I, you know, I went back and forth about whether to watch Train Spotting too. I don't know for almost an hour. Of course, this is also a terrible thing about Netflix is you spend forever scrolling through yeah. options. You spend you almost choose. as long choosing as you do watching. And oftentimes I get too tired and fall asleep before I even pick anything. But in the end, I couldn't rent this movie. I couldn't rent this movie because something said to me, this is a sequel to a drama that's 20 years old. Danny Boyle hasn't done anything good in the last 10 years. What's the likelihood that this is going to be good? Um, I don't think Danny Boyle's done anything that I've liked since Millions. I was going to say, probably Millions is the the last thing. Did he do Sunshine? Sunshine yeah. had moments. Sunshine was oh, Sunshine was good. I was is Sunshine before or after millions. That's good. I think it. I guess I, I think it's the next one that he did. Maybe it is. But someone's Sunshine gonna, was good. Someone's on Wikipedia right now, right? Correcting us over the across their iPhone. Sunshine was good, but but after that, I don't know. He kind of made a number of films that I wasn't really interested in seeing. So I'm thinking, I used to trust this director. He hasn't done the last seven things he's done. I haven't been that interested in. It's a sequel to a film that was really terrible for me to watch. Um, this looks very cool. I watched the the trailer. It has this compelling song and these beautiful images. And um, is this really going to be a film that I would buy uh, for keeps and watch again? No. I mean, all these things combined, it's like I, I can't. I can't see spending two hours on this. Um, but I, I started watching this Vim Vendors film, The American Friend, because I mean, I've seen every Vim Vendors film that I've seen, I've seen more than once. And I thought he's far more likely to make a film that I want to change me. Whereas Danny Boyle doesn't really make films that I want to change me. Um, and so I, you know, I passed on one and I picked the other. So for people... Are, are there any filmmakers or movies that you would recommend to parents to watch with their families or for themselves to yeah. to help them understand film better, understand how to watch movies better, that provide um, a canvas that is ideal for the kind of discussion or contemplation or re-watching yeah. that will uh, enable parents or parent yeah parents and children to be good educated film consumers so to yeah. speak are there is there or, or maybe there's a couple of a couple of critics like i will ask those questions separately i guess but are, what okay. are a couple of films or filmmakers that you sort of trust implicitly that you would say without reservation these are the films and the filmmakers you should pay attention to to help you get better at this uh i i would certainly put frank capra on that list i think Frank Capra films are sophisticated enough that adults can enjoy them, but they're humane enough that children enjoy them. Frank Capra films tend to have all the easily identifiable characters that children love to see. They have villains. They have, they have kind, virtuous men. Um, they have faithful women. Uh, Frank Capra films are, are full of the kind of things that children love to see. There's often children in Frank Capra films, and children love to see their own kind. In a film. And he did It's a Wonderful Life. Right. It's a Wonderful um, Life. Uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Yeah, that's the other one. Lots of Jimmy Smith, Jimmy Stewart movies. Lots of, Jim, lots of Jimmy Stewart movies. Um, and Frank Capra also made these really big idealistic films, um, which kind of makes them perfect for hmm. yearly viewing on holidays. So if you're the kind of person 
um, who, who's looking to establish certain traditions in your family. I, I mean, I think how many, how many American families watch It's a Wonderful Life every Christmas? That's a great habit to be in. Mm-hmm. Um, if you're going to watch a movie on Christmas, oh my goodness, by all means, watch something that you've seen before and make it a yearly make it a yearly ritual to watch it. I mean, mm-hmm. there's nothing worse than watching it a new movie on a holiday. becomes like part of the liturgy. Yeah. Uh, your family, you know, the liturgy of celebrating that holiday. Right. Yeah. And I, I, I think, you know, Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, maybe. becomes part of the event. You were using the word event right, earlier. Right. Then, yeah. then, it's a, then it's an event as opposed to an accident. Whereas I, I find that there's nothing really more demoralizing um, then you know, sitting the family down, uh, sitting the family down to watch a movie you've never seen before on Christmas, and then you have to turn it off after forty-five minutes. Right, right. <laughs> That's a awful feeling. So, Frank Capra, yeah. he also did Arsenic and Old Lace, and oh uh, yeah, um, what else? Mister Deeds or something like that. He the original Mister Deeds, yeah, yeah. Um, but um, so those are older. Those Anybody are older. more recent that? Maybe not contemporary, but since since Capra and, and current. Yeah. That I would say would teach you something about. Um, what You said you grew up in Hitchcock. Would you include Hitchcock in that? No, no. Um, Hitchcock's a very, a very corrupt kind of, very corrupt human being that made pretty corrupt films. Um, so the, the fact that, you know, a lady doesn't take her blouse off at any point in, in Psycho or... I guess she does. Vertigo by no means makes Vertigo a, a kind of virtuous film to watch. Um, Vertigo might be better first encountered when you're 19 or 20, uh, but I wouldn't show that to. I don't know. I wouldn't show it to a high school age boy. In terms of directors that I would say a family could generally trust. I'm going to get myself in trouble here and recommend somebody who... <laughs> yeah, tread uh, lightly. <laughs> right. Um, Spielberg. I would say mm. uh, mm. Spielberg, who's who's a, a decent disciple of, of Frank Capra's. I think Frank Capra's vision of humanity is encaptured, or captured nicely in a handful of Spielberg mm. films. Um, E.T., Empire of the Sun, um, Raiders of the Lost Ark, uh... Those are all films that I've shown my children. My children are quite young. Um, what about AI? I don't Is think a child would understand AI. I would wait until... Older high school? Yeah. Not because... Yeah. Yeah. 17, because of the complexity of 16 everything. or 17? Yeah. Just because I think a child would be bored and scared by it. Um, and this is the challenge, right? Because yeah. not every director... not Entrusting a director implicitly with your children right. is is the challenge. Right. Um, and it's, the, you know, it's the same with these kids shows. Like generally speaking, there, there are kids shows on Netflix or whatever that I'm generally speaking comfortable right. with my boys watching. Yeah. Or certain movies. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to implicitly trust the, every episode of it. You know, and it, you know, every time I put on an episode that I haven't seen right. or my wife hasn't seen, right. I, I'm a 25 minute show. Right. It, you're taking a risk. Right. That God only knows what's going to happen. That, well, yeah, that my kids are just going to turn into, you know, hooligans. Right. <laughs> Which seems inevitable anyway, so I don't know what I'm even um, do you, do you Do your kids watch a lot of animated shows? 
they watch some animated shows. Okay. They watch more animated shows when they watch at people's houses besides mine. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like my in-laws or whatever. Right. But um, they also, you know, some of the animated shows we let them watch are quite old. Like the old Looney Tunes. Right. Like the old Bugs Bunny things. Right. Um, but they also, I, we try to make a point to watch black and white movies. Yeah. To watch old movies. And they're still at the age yet where we watched it. We actually watched a 1941, 1940, somewhere in that range, old Roy Rogers movie. Yeah. Like an old Western, probably the 30s. Yeah. And they did not, one time did they say, not one time did they say, this is boring because it's in black and white. Right. It's like young children. Yeah. And they, you know, they get, they watch their enemies, but they just don't judge. They judge it so differently. Right. At that age. Right. I feel like we, we cultivate in our children this idea that, you know, black and white is boring. I was watching, um, a couple of years ago, I was teaching To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. It was on the curriculum that I was given. So I was teaching that and we watched the movie. These are 10th graders. Mm-hmm. What's that? 15, 16 years old. Somewhere in that range. Yes. 15. And they thought that this movie was so boring. Yeah. And I said, why? And then they didn't say anything about the pace. Right. You know, that it's a little slow or a little longer. It's a little over two hours or whatever. Really? What they cared, they were like, it's boring because of what we're looking at. Like, the, because it is black and white. Right. And I feel like that's not, what I realized is that's not something that they're, they're not born with this desire to see everything in color. That's right. Or to see everything be flashy. Right. We cultivate that in them. Right. It's like we only give them, like our children aren't born only liking terrible food. We we give them so much terrible food right. that they don't know how to experience really a complex yeah. dish. I I think that's true. I mean, there are, so this is, okay, so this is not, I'm glad you brought this up because this is not a consideration um, that I've heard many people talk about, but I, but I wonder how many people have ever wanted, you know, to say this, um, on the rare occasion that my children, my children do not watch animated TV shows on the rare occasion that they see an animated TV show, they are to like not pay, they wouldn't watch Ratatouille. You wouldn't watch a Pixar movie. Um, no TV shows. So right. Okay. Animated TV shows are out. And I, I try to show them three live-action films for every cartoon film that I show them. Um, and they, they love cartoon movies, but I do not love cartoon movies. Cartoon films have a, have a habit of inducing a certain kind of mania in my children for about two hours, if not longer, after mm. they finish watching them. My children are fairly sedate, but they become manic and easily annoyed after they watch animated shows. I think this has to do something, uh, has something to do with the kind of appeal to the senses that typically runs in an animated TV show or just an animated film. I'm Mm. similarly opposed to films that will blow out their senses. So I remember when I showed them Hugo, which is a, which is a decent film. You know, it's even a, Hugo's even a decent film about filmmaking, but that film has. That's the Zeme, Zeme, Zemeckis movie, right? Hugo's the Scorsese movie. Oh, Scorsese. Yeah. 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 Right, right. So, you know, I mean, you look at it and you think adventure story, it's rated PG. 
Um, this seems friendly enough. Why not show this to my kids? I show, mm-hmm. I show this to my kids. My kids went nuts. Like that film is so overwhelming in terms of sensuality. I mean, you are pouring. So the, and so they're not prepared for it. They're not prepared for it, and I, I don't think that the average child is prepared for the overload, the sensual overload of a film like Hugo, um, or of a film like I don't know, Adventures of Tintin, or so. In choosing chil- children's movies, you would search out movies that are simpler. Um, if you're choosing an animated movie, a movie right. that's that has a much simpler approach, like more like the Japanese type? Um, I don't know. Those are, I mean, I'm, I'm okay with my kids watching Miyazaki films. Right. Miyazaki That's what I was thinking of. don't induce the same kind of mania that a lot of animated They seem like the do. pace of them is not, I mean, slower, yes, but I, I don't even, like, I don't think children are that opposed to slow movies. Right. They're fine with that. That's true. Because they're not really people who... Children are not typically people who move at fast paces. They play, but they're not like, I have to get on to the next thing in my life. Right. Typically. Right. Um, they want to grow That's up true. and things like that, but they just live their lives differently. But there's something about um, some animated movies, just to your point, yeah. where they just, the, the quick cuts, it's this, they're create. it's like, they're create. it's like this response where the brain is like, is saying, okay, I, you're training the brain for the next cut. Right. And some of the Miyazaki movies at least linger. They'll linger on a shot a little longer. Right. I was thinking about this about myself, actually, because yeah. I was watching... Last night, I couldn't sleep. Yeah. So, speaking of Netflix, <coughs> I've been watching the movie Drive. Yeah. In a few parts, re-watching that for like the third or fourth time. Yeah. Um, not saying this is a movie that everybody should watch. Right. It's pretty violent. Um, but one thing he does in that movie is he really lingers. Hmm. There's a shot. On, uh, do, do you know the movie well? Yeah. So there's this, the this scene where Ryan Gosling and Carey Mulligan, their characters, are getting to know each other. Right. And that's kind of like what we expect to be this romance. It's kind right. of blossoming. And they're driving along, and there's no dialogue. It's this kind of noir moment. The L.A. city lights are are basically lighting the inside of the car for us. Yeah. And she reaches out and touches his hand. Yeah. Um, which is on the... The, the stick in the car right and the shot is 20 to 30 seconds long maybe longer right of just their hand there which right. is very unusual for modern modern movies and it lingers and it lingers long enough to where you're you are forced to contemplate this the moment the gesture yeah it's 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 a gesture that it, the director is telling you to think about it's it's ma- it's forcing you to think about it right in a way that kind of like um a novel can do with a certain kind of beautiful description right. or a poem can do with a certain turn of phrase or the certain, the way an enjambment or something structural within a poem right? that a lingering shot can do that in a film. Right. And I think movies that do that train us or, or, or demand of us something that the quick cut does not. Right. Yeah. The film that's you know, 4,000 cuts. Yeah. And, and that's just in a scene. <laughs> loud. Right. Loud. Yeah. Uh, garish um so maybe it's not just our children shouldn't watch those maybe none of us should watch many movies like that or or if you're gonna watch such a film it should it should be rare um but it should also be occasional i mean Mm -hmm. i'm really kind of insistent on this occasional aspect of of 
these kind of films. So, I mean, mm-hmm. when I mean when summer rolls around, I'm far less discerning in what I watch um, because I think you know summer's kind of a wild time. It's a uh, um, I don't know. It seems more fitting. I mean, if you're going to watch Transformers, you should certainly watch it in July. Like <laughs> yeah. w- watching watching Transformers in November. Um, <laughs> that just doesn't, it just doesn't make sense. It does, it, yeah, it's like you know, it gets cold outside, and you know, you you bake some pies and put on a sweater and watch Transformers. It doesn't it doesn't work. Um, whereas, I mean, if you're going to you know, take a road trip and go swimming and then come home and watch Transformers, there's something that seems fitting about that. So. So in addition to a film being an event, I think, you know, kind of seasonal watching schedules make sense. And, and you know, the, the calendar kind of kind of herds the mind towards certain kinds of thoughts. And it does the same thing with music. We all love. Sure. We, Graham, you and I were just listening to something in the office and Graham was like, you know, if you want to start here, if you're interested in any more. And you said, oh, this seems like something I would listen to in the fall. Yeah. Yeah. Art, art I think... There is something aesthetic about the seasons. Right. Like there's something artistic about them in general. Yeah. Um, and they ask us to feel certain ways. Right. That's very um, true. We can't help it. Season. I mean, that's why we have, you know, on the negative side of that is the seasonal affective disorder. Right. Is that what it's called? Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's probably some kind of positive side to seasonal affective disorder too that we don't... Have a name for. Right. It's like... Well, it's the summer, and so I feel this way. And yeah. Someday it'll have some diagnosable name. Or the in the fall or the winter, this positive, you know, that right. exactly what you said, right? You bake a pie, you put it on a sweater, and you put on a good movie. Right. You know, that, that's the positive side of you hunker down. Right. Um, yeah, you want something quiet. You want something a little bit more contem- contemplative. Um, yeah, you watch something that's, you know, m- maybe deals with a heavier subject like sickness or or divorce or something like that i mean those films seem um ready for november october november december but um uh something wilder i guess for for summer um to go back to an earlier question directors that you can trust uh i would put billy wilder on that oh yeah i would say and uh, he made a lot of movies he made a lot of movies (laughs) the the later ones are better generally speaking um but but i would i would watch anything billy wilder what's your favorite billy wilder just personally some like it hot oh and you watch that every year too right every year you just wrote a piece for us it's coming out in our magazine magazine. i think it's going up on the digital version today or tomorrow actually um on the metaphysics of film yes um and you talk in there about the idea of a maybe one day during your lifetime there'll be a (laughs) What, I can't remember how you put it now, but something there'll be a there'll be an, a calendar for film watching, much like there's a church calendar. Yes, and I think I, I, there's been several times when, um, when I've been tempted to say the canon is closed. Like I, I can be content just These watching are the 12. things. That's right. I yeah. can be content watching things that I've seen before. Make them into feast days. That's right. Yeah, but given the like, imagine how imagine how much fun it would be. If, if Hollywood worked on such a schedule where, um, like, imagine scaling back the release schedule from 300 films a year to, like, 40. It probably would do everyone some good. It would do everyone some good. But I'm, I'm thinking, like, there's, I mean, there's, there's so many jokes about, um, you know, the kind of films that come out in the summer. Imagine for a moment that 
like this was a somewhat policed liturgical ceremonial kind of thing. And big, big expensive blockbuster films were not allowed to be released until a certain date in the year. And that when this date rolled around, there was like the ceremonial release of the world is destroyed movie. And there was some director that was tapped to do it every year. And it was an honor to be the guy who got to do the big hmm. summer initiation film. Um, and, hmm. and the film... It feel, this feels very ancient. Yeah, it feels very... Well, right. It feels, like Roman the, or, yeah, or like even the, medieval. Like the yearly tragedy, you know, performance of the tragedies. Um, yeah, so, you know, like, I mean, it says July 4th or something like that. Like July 4th this year... Um, this year, Danny Boyle has been selected to do the um, the July Fourth, you know, initiation film, and and this year Chicago is going to be destroyed, and you know, you pick some city every year, and or it's um, the war movie, or it's the war movie, right? Okay, and so yeah, one person gets to do the war movie, and it's Christopher Nolan Christopher got Nolan to do his to, version of the war movie. That's right. Somebody's got to do a biopic about a, a, a musician at some point in the year. Mm-hmm. But if you come up with like forty kinds of films. Uh, it would certainly give us, I mean, it would certainly give us a language, yeah, a context in which to discuss. Yes. Um, it would, everything's so haphazard now. Um, and the, it makes the film industry seem so chaotic. Yeah. But the order that that would provide, right. this is obviously very idealistic because there's too much money involved right. in terrible movies at the bottom of the, you know, right. um, that only make five million. Right. But it only costs a million to make. Right. You make a bunch of those, you make a lot of money. Right. Um, but it would give us a, a context in which to, which to discuss it. Because expectations go a long way. Right. Well, I, I, I think what I'm, what I'm asking for here, and again, this is highly idealized, but I, I think that if, if secular culture modeled itself a bit more on sacred culture, um, the world would be a happier place. So... I mean, you only you only get to celebrate Christmas once a year, right? Um, you only get to celebrate Easter. Well, I guess you celebrate it once a week in a kind of minor way, and then once a year in a major way. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's only one uh, feast day of John the Baptist every year. There's only one Transfiguration every year, mm-hmm. um, and it happens every year. And there are certain things about you know any celebration of the Transfiguration that are going to be the same. Your participation in it is going to vary by the year. But I'm, I'm just thinking if there was. You know, if we if we approach storytelling in the same way, and we had a more we had a more sacral secular culture. Well, if you think about so the Transfiguration, right, or Christmas, for example, right. as you get older and you you experience the feast of Christmas, right, anew every year, right, your understanding of that deepens, right, your experience deepens, your knowledge deepens, and right. therefore, in theory, anyway. It gets better. It gets better. Right. And so as, if you had that about film, if every 4th of July was the war movie, the war and you movie had these the different fourth. interpretations of it, and right. you, you know, you could, you could, you're thinking about it as you lead up to it. Just, you, you, there's, there's a preparation time. Right. Just like there is for Christmas. Right. You know, we've got that time where even if you're not doing anything spiritually preparation, right. you're preparing. You're getting ready. You're getting ready. Yeah. And then you have the, then you, you could watch that movie and it, it builds on all of your previous experiences with that sort of movie. Right. And it adds to your understanding of that subject matter, right? And adds to the conversation, and so there, and it, so therefore, it deepens your your contemplation of it, your understanding of it. Absolutely. You know, you go through that for seventy years, you're gonna have, you know, you can't help but have thought quite a bit about what 
what what war is, what right. what a war movie should be. Um, you know, you're gonna the very act of comparison between different directors, right? Be, that that sacral approach, right, demands of you and, would be very useful. And there are certain things, and this this might not seem like a particularly favorable comparison to make, but whenever we have these really big franchises mm-hmm. like the Alien franchise or James Bond. Um, these films always invite this interesting comparison between one and the next, and we and we learn something interesting about our own age, and we make a you know a Star Wars about our has own been age. like Wars this film. right now. That's right. Um, like, who will play the new Han Solo? Yeah, I wish that that was a question that was that was multiplied out into I don't know, a number of different directions. Um, so, I mean, you compare nineteen seventies James Bond films versus eighties and nineties and and then the kind of ones that were made after, after Daniel Craig came in, and they they kind of went for a, a less hammy kind of. Uh, it was more yeah, they're real films, now. right? Well, the same is true of Batman, right? We yeah. went from um, the the form fitting. Um, uh, you remember the the debate about. Was it George Clooney's nipples in the uh, yeah, in the old yeah. Batman suit? Ninety one or ninety two or whatever. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now these are serious films, yeah. right? But it's interesting to compare them. I mean, you line up all the Batman films, all the James Bond films, all the Star Wars films, um, and and it, it seems as though there's there's a certain and this is you know, maybe a mixed blessing. Hollywood is kind of veering off towards this more sacral vision um, because everything is being franchised now. Uh, like most of most weekends of the year have a franchise film. Yeah, coming something's out. being released. Yeah, right. I think that the, it, it would maybe be interesting to to start thinking of this happening with dramas and romantic comedies, and and not with franchise characters that are the same every time, but um, you know, a Christmas film, a Fourth of July film, as opposed to the Star Wars film of the year. Hmm. It doesn't have to only be this year's Avengers, this year's Star Wars. I mean, I mean, I guess in a sense we do this because we have the. There's always like films are sort of seasonal. True. Yeah. To a degree, like you're gonna have. There's going to be some kind of act, superhero movie, some kind of action movie. Like it's, I guess it's sort sure. of genre based, and the different studios will pick their version of that. And right. It might just be that the problem is the sheer volume creates the chaos. Right. Yeah. A lot of the volumes really... And how do we winnow that down? Yeah. How do you determine which ones you're going to watch? Right. Okay. I mean, you could, you could kind of do this on your own. You could start doing this on your own. Or you could do this in your family as well. Um, yeah, right. By making film more occasional than, than accidental. Okay, so we've gone over an hour. Let's, okay. let's, ask, let's conclude by asking a couple questions here. Okay. Um, you're... You are, now we've decided we've, we've somehow decided movies that we're going to watch, right? Right. Can you give a couple of questions that parents can talk about with their children or ask their children to think about? Yeah. You already said your parents asked you, "Is this true?" Yeah. Um, can you offer a couple other practical suggestions for questions that people can ask about about while watching movies or Absolutely. while discussing them? Yeah. Um, so one of my one of my favorite questions to ask while teaching art history and putting up a you know a slide of any piece of art is if you hung up this painting, a nice reproduction of this painting in your room, you put it on a wall and it was the first thing that you saw in the morning and the last thing that you saw at night when you went to bed and you had this painting on your wall for a year, how would it change you? 
if you continually exposed yourself to this over and over and over and over and over again in a conscious sort of way, how would this painting affect you? I think there's a similar kind of question that you could ask about a film. If, after you finish watching a film, if you're a parent who wants to lead a... If you're a parent who wants to have a conversation about a film with your child or with some students when you're done watching it, asking the question, if we watched this every week for a couple months, how would it begin to affect us? And I think that's an important question to ask, not be, because it's not hypothetical. When a film affects you very, di- very deeply, hmm. you keep mulling yeah. over it in such a way that you're basically, any contemplative film, as opposed to sensual trash, any contemplative film, you will rewatch many times in your imagination and in your memory. So the question is not how will this, how would this affect us if we watched it every week for you know the rest of the summer. It's as we mull on this film, how is it going to affect us? And that that necessarily goes back to how do you determine what kids you want your movies to sure. what movies you want your kids to watch? Right. Because you have to think: Do I want my what's going to happen to my children? Do I want whatever is going to happen to my children to happen if they spend a lot of time thinking about right. it? Cinema is it necessitates ongoing thought, That's even right. if your kids don't realize they're thinking about it. That's right. We're always thinking about these movies that we watch. It's yeah, it, because it's in there, and so one of the one of the Terrible mistakes. And it's the visual nature of it. The visual nature of it. You can still hear it. I mean, yeah. children will recognize the film scores. The multi-sensory like, that's right. experience of film is unlike other art forms. That's right. Makes it both powerful and dangerous. It can be powerful in a good way and in a bad way. That's right. Equally. That's that's absolutely true. And so I think one of those those fundamental errors that a lot of parents make um, in deciding to show a child a film is. Uh, I mean, this is two hours of her life. Yeah, what's... Yeah. Right. No, I mean, if you show a child... A, if you show a 10-year-old a two-hour film, that's not two hours of their life. That's thousands of hours of their life. It's going to be in there forever. And, yeah. and, and one, of the, one of the problems in, in conceiving of film interpretation as nothing more than analysis or worldview analysis is that, is that it completely rejects the seductive power of film. Yeah, because seduction bypasses. This is a good thing to remember when you're thinking about what you're going to show your kids and whether your kids can handle it. Seduction laughs at analysis, like films hmm. that I have seen that have destroyed me. I could have written great essays when I was done watching them about how they were false. Like Train Spotting is a great example of this. I saw that film when I was 18 years old, 17 years old. Terrible film for me to see. On a number of levels. But when I was done watching it, I could have provided you with a great Christian worldview analysis of why this film was false. But the film is powerful and seductive. And its seductive power just sailed right past any kind of analysis that I might have given. I mean, I could have... It's not always obvious until the years down the road. That's right. Well, I mean, the film puts forward a, a very... Um, a lingering vision... Of an authentic life. You know, that's, it's like what we do. Our children are going to read and see junk. Right. The things that are going to haunt them in a way. Well, right. I'll just say that. Well, right. They're going to haunt them. That's why it's our job as teachers and parents right. to put forth right. good examples. That's 
Thank you for using the word haunt. And you might, you might simply, as opposed to saying, as opposed to a parent saying, what do I want my children to watch? Ask them, what do I want my children to be haunted by? Mm. Hmm. I'm going to show them a film and it's going to haunt them. They will never be done with it, really. They will watch it's, it's this is many times. This why we times. need to give them... What's the uh, what's a what's a word that we can use that sounds more positive than haunt? Than haunt? Like for it's the true of the literature too. It's why right. we give them the greatest books, right? Um, because they're going to whatever it is, linger, haunt, whatever. There's got to right. be a pop. We got someone's going to have one for us. I'm sure they'll post it on social media, right? <laughs> Tweet at us at Josh Gibbs. What do, what do I want indelibly marked into yeah. my child's mind? And, and, and if you're if you're mainly That's why thinking we read of Dante. Right, yeah. You, you want this in there. You want Dante in, you want to get Dante in there, right? Yeah. And um, even if we don't, and we may not, it may not seem like it is in that kid's head, right. Dante or Hamlet or whatever. Right. It might not seem like it's in the kid's head when you're teaching it for the first time. Right. But it may be that 20 years later, right. that being in the kid's head can, can be in combat with the, the negative, that train spotting too, which is also haunting them. Right. And it can be pointing them in, in a direction, you know, that's, this is what, that's the work of the Holy Spirit, I guess. Right. But, well, and oftentimes we don't, we tend to not think of film in that way because we think, we think of it like, we think one and done with film. Like mm-hmm. I'm going to watch this once and I'm going to talk about it. And if it's really good, I'll watch it again. Um, but, but I mean, just, just hype, like just in terms of argument here, I mentioned the girl on the train recently. Um, that which was a loathsome film, a, a hateful film, terrible film. This is why you have to teach kids to turn things off. It's true. You, you got to teach them to turn it off. That you're not committed to it. Just Minimize the, the risk. <laughs> but I, but I keep going back to the girl on the train because I keep complaining to people in <laughs> conversation about how bad it was. And so I, ha- I you know, I haven't let this film go. Yeah, and, that's interesting. And no matter, no matter, how, you're almost angry. I am. I'm. I. Yeah, it's an inhumane film, and it's one of those films that. Um, it's just there to corrupt the viewer. And I, you know, a saner society would penalize people you know, by, by, with, with fines for doing this, making yeah. this kind of film. But it doesn't matter how much analysis of this film I give. I still hate it and it makes me angry to think about it and it's still in my head. You can't analyze something out of your head. Like, and anyone who thinks that interpretation uh, and analysis can render something which is dangerous safe, it's in there for good. And how many things are there out there that you can analyze that you wish you could get rid of, but they're just with you? I yeah, mean, because you can intellectualize the negative side of it, but I mean, I think the almost obvious, the most obvious example is pornography, right? Right. Like you see something, you can intellectually create this, craft this argument within yourself to convince yourself, right? You know, this is wrong. Right. It doesn't mean anything to me. Right. But at some inopportune time or something, it's still going to haunt you. Right. You know, the thing that you saw when you were 14. Right. It's going to come back not to realizing, you again and again and yeah, again. Yeah. Yeah. Not realizing, not meaning to see it when you were 14, not right. understanding. Right. And you would, have never, you would have never said at 14, there's an argument in favor of this. Right. You would have said, it's wrong and I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. Or, or maybe you didn't mean to do it right. as a 14-year-old. I mean, there's plenty. I think we have plenty of experiences like that in our oh, lives, sure. too, where we didn't mean, we didn't want to see something right. or hear something or, or hear feel something. something or whatever. Yeah. And, you know, you think you just try to put it out of your head, but then it comes back. Right. So, you know, that's why I think the other things we accidentally put in front of our children are almost worse than the things that we, well, not worse, but equally as bad as, as the powerful. things that they find on their own that are poor choices by them. That's right. You know, yeah. 
it's up to us to a certain extent. Um, okay, before we close, one or two other questions. We kind of went off on that. One or two other questions you can give to to parents to discuss with their kids, and we'll just spend like two or three minutes on this, and then we got to go. Um, other questions to give parents, parents for discussing films with their kids They've after all, the movie's over. Yeah, after the movie's over, or maybe whilst halfway through or something. Whatever. Yeah, man, I would not. I would never say no conversation should go on in the middle of a movie. Okay, ever. Okay, ever. Um, uh, you. The only question that should go on in the middle of a film is, should we turn this off? Um, uh, but discussing a film. Do we continue with this journey? Do we continue with this? Like, do we? Would um, you? Would you stop a movie halfway through watching it with your kids? Maybe not now because your kids are pretty young. But yeah. Maybe when they're fifteen, sixteen, or something. Would you stop a movie in the middle and actually say to them, "What do you guys think? Should we keep going?" Um, I mean, my wife and I do that on occasion. Um, would you? But is that a way of training judgment in your children, asking them that question, discussing it with them? I, that is an interesting question. Uh, yeah, uh, and, a, and a completely viable one as well. I don't know that I would say, should we keep going with this? I think I'd probably say, we're not going to keep going with this. Like, this is, this is not what we signed up for. Um, uh, but if I was turning off a film with my children when they were 13 or 14, I would feel as though I'd been tricked. You know, um, this, is not, this is not at all yeah. what, yeah. what I had signed up for. Um, uh, I'm getting somebody to think of themselves from the outside uh, at the end of a film is using film to teach a kind of self-awareness. Um, so maybe asking a question of who would be benefited by watching this film? Um, who is this film good for? Who would this film be bad for? Because uh, not every film is for everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, even great films. Even great films, yeah, sure. Um... um and, but then I think some very, I don't know, some very predictable questions like um, uh, who in the film should we be like? Who do we pattern our lives after in this film? Um, did the film have a character that was worthy of imitation? Um, what was accomplished in this film that we ought to try to do as well? I think most parents are probably, if they're going to have a conversation with their kids, they're asking those kind of questions anyway. Um but beginning to address the fact that this film is going to be with us for a while, if not forever, is a good place to start in a conversation after a film. And rejecting the naivete of, well, let's talk about it and be done with it, as though that was even a, a possibility. I think that's, that's an important way of beginning to, to deal with a movie. Hmm. Well, this has been fun. Yes. Hopefully, we will continue to have more conversations <laughs> like this. Maybe even on discussions, ongoing discussions on specific films. I'd like that. Um, any final thoughts you want to send out there for people? Um, Billy Wilder for teenage boys. Make them charming. Um, not enough wordplay in modern films. Um, hmm. uh, and he does have some movies in color. He does. <laughs> not enough wordplay. Not enough subtle humor. Yeah. Um, and. And I think that I think that older films, especially Billy Wilder films, are a great way of teaching a kind of charm and wit and a and a soft touch. Hmm. Um, final piece of advice: everyone who is even a little interested in film should get Anthony Lane's book "Nobody's Perfect." I was just going to ask you. My last question is: yeah, film critic or two that you trust? Anthony Lane. I trust Anthony Lane in virtually everything. Um, when I finish watching a film. His is the first review that I read. Um, Anthony Lane is a master stylist. He's not a Christian, but I think he's a very good moralist. Um, he has ways of approaching a film that you 
would wouldn't occur to you unless you'd been writing film criticism for for you know twenty or thirty years. Mm-hmm. He's a very old pro. Um, he has a, a big, gorgeous vocabulary. Um, and what's the book that you said? Uh, the only anthology of his work is Nobody's Perfect, which also includes a number of profiles that he's written. Okay, he's New York based, but English born. Yeah, I was going to say, isn't he an Englishman? Yeah, I think and that's he's, the New Yorker. He writes for the New Yorker. Yeah, pretty much ex- almost exclusively, I think. I think so. But Nobody's Perfect is I don't know eight hundred pages long, and it's <laughs> critiques that he critis- or essays that he wrote between I think ninety two and two thousand two. So almost okay. any major release between 92 and 2002, you can read a very clever review of. Um, and, and I know that there's a certain kind of person who's going to jump right on these kind of essays if you pick up the book. And, but the most, the most awful, horrible, lurid films that you can find often turn into the best... <laughs> pieces of film writing? And the best yeah. pieces of criticism yeah. uh, when a moralist is treating on them. Hmm. Um, uh, so obviously no one should read or no one should watch the film Showgirls but you should read Anthony Lane's review of it nobody should see Fifty Shades of Grey but you should read Anthony Lane's review of it uh, because the way that he skewers those films is with a with a very light touch um, but uh, but he doesn't really um, he doesn't treat trash kindly hmm. and his criticisms are not overbearing they tend to be um, you know, with a scalpel, hmm. not with a serrated edge. Hmm. Well, thanks for your advice. Thanks for talking. Absolutely. It was fun. And thanks to everyone who's been listening. This has been another episode of Quiddity on the Cersei Institute Podcast Network, and we will talk to you next time. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details even when we're on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.